Now, we're continuing our Mark, our study through Mark. And as, as Jack said this morning, that he feels that the prophecy was that God's going to preach on, or I'm going to preach on Mark today. That was a good prophecy, buddy. So now, we spent last week with Jesus trying to be trapped by the religious leaders so that if he answered the way that they wanted him to or they expected him to, the crowds would hear his response and, well, hopefully side with the persons asking the questions, the leaders. They were hoping to get an answer from him that would be tough for those to hear. Now, if he answered their question in a way that made everyone upset, then the crowds would be okay with the Pharisees arresting him. But since he didn't answer it, he kind of threw it back at them. <coughs> by asking them a question that they didn't answer. And so he, they didn't answer, so he refused to answer. Well, now we come to chapter 12, which is actually a continuation of the story in chapter 11. Now, you know the chapter breaks were not part of the original Bible. Numbers and verses and all that stuff, we, were, we added that later to make it easier for us to find stuff. So when this was written, chapter 11 flowed right into chapter 12 with no, no stopping, no, no, no break. So after Jesus stumps them with the question, we see this next example. And that's Mark chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, it says, He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another so that, they, so that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one, one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. And I pray your anointing upon it. I pray you would help us to rightfully divide your word of truth and allow it to speak to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to break this down a little bit verse by verse. And as I was studying this, some of the things that were said in there would have been plain to the people that were listening to it. And we'll go through this verse by verse. Verse 1 says, he spoke to them in parables. Now, remember, he just kind of rebuked them with the not answering the question. And before they had a chance to, like, make their escape, he tried to get their attention by talking to them again. So they could not leave. And while the leaders were still there, he needed to make sure they stuck around to hear this next parable because it was directed at them. He didn't want them to leave. This wasn't directed at the crowds. It was directed at the, the leaders that were there. And he goes to verse 1, continues, A man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Now, 
Jesus' use of those words, wall, pit, wine press, tower, that's all things everyone would have knew, known was necessary to build a vineyard. These were all necessary things when you have a vineyard. So it's, he's talking about things that everyone understood. The leaders would have got it. The people around him would have got it. Oh yeah, he's building the vineyard. He needs all these things. So that's part of the story. So he was using that to get their attention, to draw them in. He's trying to get the people, especially the leaders, to see the analogy that he's going to draw in a minute. Now what Paul talks about the human body in relation to the church body, we, we understand what he's talking about, right? How the body is one and the church body is one. So it's an analogy that Paul is drawing. Jesus is drawing the same thing. He wants to make sure that he has their attention so when he drops this bomb on them, they get it. Verse one continues, then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. And as some commentaries have said, this is a normal activity. A lot of vineyards were owned by a few people and were leased to many people. So it was a common thing in that day to rent, basically rent out your yard, rent out your vineyard. And now Jesus comes to the analogy because a vineyard at that time would have been familiar to Jews because God represented the vineyard as Israel. Psalm 80 verse 8 says, you brought a vine out of Egypt, talking about Jewish people. You drove out the nations and planted it. Again, talking about the Jewish nation. Verse 16, your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Again, the, the vine is referring to the Jewish nation. Isaiah 5 says, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And if you read the rest of Isaiah, you'll see the analogy is again to the nation of Israel. So verse 2 goes on and says, At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, the rest of the parable sounds kind of innocuous to people who are not familiar with the Jewish nation. But the Jewish people who knew Jewish law understood what he was saying. Because back in Leviticus, God told them how a vineyard was supposed to work. Leviticus 19.23 says, when you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years you are to consider it forbidden. It must not be eaten. So for three years, he can't eat the fruit of the vineyard. In the fourth year, all of its fruit will be holy an offering of praise to the Lord. Again, you can't eat it, but this is the fruit you offer to God. And verse 25 says, but in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. In this way, your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. Now, in order for the landlord to retain his legal rights to the property, he actually has to receive produce from that property every year it could be it could be anything it could be veggies it could be stuff growing in the center but he actually had to come back and and take some of the the vineyard for himself to retain ownership he basically had to be there if he didn't do that he would lose his legal rights to it it would become like squatters rights the people who were there would assume and would be legally allowed to take possession of the land so this guy had to send back servants every year to collect something from him, which is the reason they killed these guys. They kicked them out because they thought, hey, if this guy doesn't collect any fruit, then he's going to forfeit the land he owns. And the, leader kept, or the owner kept sending people in order to retain ownership. 
And it was a question of his authority over the property that was there. So verse 2 goes on and says, He sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man in the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them beat others they killed. Now, how does this tie in with Leviticus? We mentioned the first three years, no fruit can be eaten. If you look at this example, it seems like three years have passed. At harvest time, year one, he sent a servant to the tenants. In verse four, then, year two, he sent another servant to them. They struck this man in the head, treated him shamefully. He sent still another one, year three. And that one they killed. And since he was closing on, in on the rebuke, Jesus telling the parable, he's getting ready to really lay it on the guys. He's now equating it with many prophets that he sent in the Old Testament. Verse five, or verse four, he sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Jesus referring to all the prophets that were sent that were killed throughout the Old Testament times. That was year three. Fourth year, if we read Leviticus, it was, that was the year that the fruit was offered to the Lord. The people couldn't eat it, they had to offer it as an offering to the Lord. And verse, in the fourth year is verse six. The one he had left to sin was a son whom he loved. You see the analogy drawing in now. Year four, that's the offering to the Lord of the fruit. Now the son was to be an offering to the Lord. He said, he sent them last saying, they will respect my son. And since the fourth year is fruit, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus being offered as a sacrifice for the people. Now I like the New American Standard Version. It says this. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. And the phrasing of that indicates that he only had one son. It wasn't like he had a bunch of kids and he sent one of them. The phrasing indicates, the Hebrew indicates that it's one, or the Greek indicates that it's one son only. The previous ones that were sent were servants of the landowner, prophets. But if he sends his son, surely they will listen because unlike the servants, the son has true authority, or he should have. Jesus has true authority. But if they thought if they killed the only one who was going to be an heir, great. The original guy is going to eventually die. Some commentaries think that at this point he had already died. If he dies and we kill the son, there's no one left to claim this land but us. We'll have squatter's rights. We'll get, take possession of the land. Verse 7 says, But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they assumed that the son was the only thing standing in the way of them getting all this land. And they were willing to, ki to kill to keep the land. Notice the analogy is getting closer. The leaders are willing to kill Jesus to keep their authority. And unlike God the Father and the Lord Jesus, who knew the outcome of Jesus being sent, he knew it would be, it would be death. We knew that. The landlord did not know that. The landlord believed that his son would be respected. And I'm, sure his, and I'm sure that he was confident that his son would not be killed. Otherwise, I'm sure he wouldn't have sent him. Verse eight, 
So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, the crowd's listening to Jesus. When he's, Jesus is talking to the leaders, they were just like passers-by. They were listening, but it wasn't addressed to them. And they probably did not understand the significance of the parable. They may not have known Leviticus. They may not have known that thing. But for sure, the Pharisees would have known what Jesus was talking about. In fact, Jesus' parable was addressing what was said back in the book of John. In John eleven forty seven, 47, it says, Then the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know that nothing at all. You know nothing at all. You do not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So Jesus obviously knew what was going to happen. And he was trying to let the Pharisees know that he knew what they were doing. And he wanted to confront them with a story that was directed right at them, even though it wasn't directed right at them. He put them on the spot. He said, verse 9, Basically, asking the question of the parable he's telling, he's asking these guys, what do you think the owner should do? Now, I read that and I'm thinking, that sounds like Nathan's confrontation of David. Nathan goes in, lays out a story about the sheep, the one owner having a bunch of sheep, one guy having one little lamb, and the guy that had a bunch of sheep takes the one lamb and kills the lamb and gets Nathan, or gets David all riled up and says, what do you think they should do? And David says, we should, that guy should pay for that. And Nathan says, you're the guy. <laughs> Love to have been a fly in that water. Can you imagine how Nathan's feeling at this moment? Here's the king, and he has the authority to kill me if he wants, but I'm going to tell him to his face what he needs to hear. And there is a story there. How often do people need to hear what God has to say, and they don't like to hear it? Or you may get response that you don't like to hear. But it doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to tell them. So Jesus lays out a story just like that. So he should arouse the desires for justice in everybody else. Everybody hears the story and they're thinking, that guy should kill those tenants. So he's getting it. But since the leaders already justified it in their minds, they couldn't answer that question. Why? Now, if we look at Matthew's account, in that account, they did answer. In Matthew 21, 41, after Jesus asked that question, the Pharisees answered, he will bring those wretches, those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to another tenant who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So just like David answered Nathan, before Nathan kind of blew it up on him. David said this in 2 Samuel 12, 5. He said, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, that man who, deserve, who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. 
Now the difference is, the Pharisees answered, getting the same question, same the answer. David answered, gave him, justice should be served. What was the difference? When they were confronted with that, David repented. When the Pharisees were confronted with that, they did not repent. They doubled down on it. Verse 9, he will, and the leaders did not answer in Mark's gospel. So Jesus affirmed their response. He says, yeah, you're right. He will come and kill those guys. So even though it answers in Matthew's account, even though it doesn't answer that in Mark, they did ask, or they didn't answer the question. And Jesus comes back and says, yes, you're right. He's going to come and kill those tenants. Webster, or Wearsby says this about the answer, about that answer. Quote, then Jesus repeated their answer as a solemn verdict from a judge. Basically saying, you know this parable is about you. And you know what you're going to do. So I'm telling you, the owner is going to come back and put judgment on you. Now the warning, it could have been a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. He was not talking to the crowds. He was talking to the leaders who were making these decisions. And Jesus said he would take the vineyard, in other words, their leadership and their God-appointed authority and give it to somebody else. Their time of being the leaders and the religious go-to people is going to end. They will no longer be the official representatives of God. And if you expand that, that means the Jewish people would no longer be the only people that God dealt with. God will reach out now to the Gentiles. These folks would lose their power and they would lose their authority over the people. The land would no longer be theirs. And soon everyone would have access that the leaders had. At that point, you know, only the, the priests and all those guys can communicate with God. The regular common folk could not. They had to go to the priest, the priest did all the stuff. But now, once that happened, and the Bible says the veil was torn in half from top to bottom, that means everybody now has access to God and everyone has equal access. You do not have to go to anybody else to intervene for you. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That means you don't have to come to me to ask for forgiveness for your sin. You have to go to God by yourself Everyone has that authority. You, you don't need anybody to be the middleman between you and God. You have full access to God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. In other words, all the access the priests had before, everybody has it. You're a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. All of us have the same access to God. No one is any closer than anybody else unless you choose to be. You know, there's a, a little meme or a phrase that says, if, if you feel further away from God than you used to be, who moved? <laughs> because God didn't move. Now before these leaders could get away, because I'm sure they're feeling a little bit, you know, either uncomfortable or mad or resentful, they knew this was about them. The Bible even says that. So what do you think their response is going to be? 
Jesus, before they even have a chance to answer, Jesus quotes back to them a messianic prophecy that he knew they would understand. Verse 10. He's basically asking the leaders, haven't you read this in your Bible? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and, it's, is it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, the stone is a direct reference, and the Jews would have known this, to the Messiah. Exodus 17, 6. Moses was standing before the stone in Horeb. He's going to, you know, hit the rock. It says, I will stand there before you at the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock, and the water will come out of, out of it for the people to drink. How many know the story? The first time, he's to hit the rock which meant the crucifixion of Jesus. The second time, he was supposed to speak to the rock because Jesus had ascended, not striking it. Now Moses struck it and got, you know, he got in trouble for that. But the rock is a symbol of Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 10, 1 says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the, the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So when he's talking about they, these leaders knew exactly what he's saying in this, this prophecy. Daniel 2:34 says, While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Zechariah 4.7 says, What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you became ground level. Then he will bring out the capstone to shout, God bless it, God bless it. Then Isaiah 28.16 says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, the one whose trust will never be dismayed. So when he's quoting this psalm, they knew exactly what he was saying. He was basically saying, I'm the stone, I'm the Messiah, I'm the landlord that you have rejected. So now there is nothing left for you except judgment. They knew it. Verse 12 says, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They understood exactly what he was saying. The landlord didn't know the tenants would kill his son, but God knew that these leaders would kill Jesus. So he knew beforehand what the judgment was going to be. Now verse 12 says, as usual, they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now this was Passover week. A whole lot of people were pouring into the town, and most, if not everybody, knew who Jesus was. Maybe they had an encounter with him. Maybe they heard him preach. Maybe he treated them or healed them. Or maybe they heard about it from other people. Either way, there's a small group of leaders and a, probably a huge crowd of just regular Passover people. And so they were highly outnumbered. Most of the people coming in would have want, at least wanted to see Jesus and would have been upset if something bad happened to him at that moment. So these guys understood that, and they let him alone. Now, because this verse is so closely related to the verse in the last chapter, we're assuming that this happened on the third day of Jesus' appearance in the town. And that would have been a Tuesday. Now let me, let me close with a quote from the, from the fire Bible. Interesting story about the fire Bible. It all goes back to our church van catching on fire. So we had fire Bibles in the church van while they caught on fire. 
Now, we saved them all. They all got smoke inhaled, but uh, we, we saved all the fire Bibles. But if you smell them, they still smell like smoke. But anyways, fire Bible says this. This parable points out the guilt of the Jewish nation regarding God's revelation and their response to Christ. They became arrogant and turned God's kingdom into a private possession that they could do with as they please. They also showed contempt for God's word and refused to accept and obey his son, Jesus Christ. Imagine if I wanted to make this church my church. And that meant everything I did here was because I wanted to do it and no one else was allowed to challenge that. That's what these guys were doing. God's word was supposed to be for everybody. And the leaders said, no, we're going to hoard that to ourselves, and we're going to make it really difficult for everybody else to get into the inner circle and we're going to keep that for ourselves." The Bible says, in, I think in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Jesus says, you, you make it so hard for people to come to know me, which is what they were doing. They were making it really hard. When someone circles himself with people that always say yes and don't allow any criticism or any change to happen, that's a sign it's going to be an issue because this is not my church. This is God's church, and God needs to do with whatever he wants to. And that means if someone is trying to take that position, that's a problem. And that's why everybody here is supposed to challenge whoever is up here with God's word. Now, people showing contempt for God's word, does that sound familiar? Most of the world has become arrogant and has shown contempt for God's word and they've refused to accept Christ just like these guys did in the Bible. If the judgment on the tenants reflects a judgment to come on Jerusalem in 70 AD, then we should expect the same judgment to come to the world at some point. And Jesus gave them ample opportunity and reasons to believe, but they refused. And I believe the world's been given ample opportunity to believe. God's design is not to show, not to issue judgment. God's design is to give everyone a chance to escape the judgment. 2 Peter 3, 9, we've, this is our verse. The Lord is, slow, is not slow in keeping his promise. In other words, not slow to return, rapture-wise. As un, some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. It doesn't mean judgment's not coming. It just means God is giving us a chance to escape it. But at some point, that window is going to close. And all the choices we made up to that point will determine what happens next for us. If you have trusted Christ, then you will escape the judgment. And you'll spend eternity in heaven. Hallelujah. Right? However, if you've constantly refused to accept Christ's forgiveness, then you have chosen for yourself to face the judgment. There's some schools of thought that says that God picks those who are saved and he also picks those who aren't going to be saved. We don't believe that. We believe everyone has the opportunity to get saved. Everyone has the choice to make. And just like Joshua, last thing. This is our verse. This is what we have to tell everybody. Joshua 24, 15. If you're unwilling to serve the Lord, then choose today who you're going to serve. Because everybody serves somebody. Everybody worships something. 
You either worship Lord Christ, or you worship money, or you worship your job, or you worship your family, or you worship your Bible, or you worship your position. Everybody worships something. It could be an idol. It could be a tree. It could be the sky. It could be a star. It could be anything. But everybody worships something. And Joshua is saying, you need to choose. You can only choose one. And the only one to choose is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand this morning? Will you bow your heads for a moment? I never want to assume that everybody who comes to church is a believer. I'm guessing most of us are. But you never want to assume that, that everyone is. So if you're here this morning and you've never really committed your life to Christ, you've never come to the point where you said, you know what, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that nothing that I do meritoriously will get me into heaven. I can't be good enough. My sin is keeping me away. And the Bible also says that the wages, the, pay, the payment for that sin is death. And death is basically eternally separated from God. You will be in a place where God is not. And that place is hell. God didn't create that for us. The Bible says he created for the devil and his angels. And he wants no one to go there. But the choices we make dictate where we go. Because the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's a gift. You have to accept that gift. You have to choose that gift. You have to come to a point in your life at some point when you're old enough to understand that you're a sinner. You have to acknowledge that and ask Jesus to pay that for you. He's already done it. You just have to believe it for yourself. And the Bible says as many as receive him not as many as who know about him, but as many as receive him, did he give the authority or the right to be called children of God. You're a child of God when you accept Christ. You do not accept Christ, you are not a child of God. So if you're here and you want to make sure that you're going to face eternity with God, and the choice you have to make is, do I believe what Jesus said? Not just in your head, but you've got to believe it in your heart. If you want to make that choice today, I want you to raise your hand. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have bought our, our salvation. That we can live joyful and hopeful in this life. Regardless of what situations we may be facing, which the Bible says or calls a short and momentary trouble. It may not feel like it at the time, but compared to eternity, it is. But even during the difficult times, we can reach out to a, a dad who cares about us, who loves us, who knows where we are, he knows what we're going through. The Bible says he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, so he feels the pain you feel. I mean, his son was crucified, so he understands. 
So, Father, we thank you for allowing us to be a part of your family, for being long-suffering with us, for being patient with us, patient before we become a Christian, and patient after we become a Christian. And we thank you that you continue to mold us and to make us into who you know we can be. Father, Lord, I pray your blessings upon each of us today. Allow us to experience that. Allow us to come back next week with testimonies of answered prayer as we took time to pray and seek your face this morning. We continue to believe for everything we prayed for and trust we have a God in heaven who is continually working on our behalf. So Lord, I commit each person to you. I pray your blessings upon them. Allow them to know you love them today, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night.